If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Lynn and John rolling it up, listening as they change the industry. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Eddie O'Connor. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much. I'm looking forward to being here. So we've been talking a little bit before uh, we started recording, and you were sort of giving me your... Uh, I was visualizing you as a kid with your psychology uh, book. So so let's, let's sort of rewind and go back. Where did you actually grow up? I grew up in uh, the Bronx, New York City. I lived across the street from the New York City Breakers. So I love my 80s hip hop and break dancing in the Bronx. Yeah, so I still got a heart for it. All right, so let's let's get into that for a second. So I was in the Northeast Circuit Breakers in Philly. <laughs> the pop and lock, yeah, the worm was my move. So my grandparents lived in the Bronx until they moved to Brooklyn. But every summer, my parents would ship me off to hang out with my grandparents, and I got used to sleeping to sirens all the time because every single night, I'm 52, so, you know, 80s uh, kid also, same kind of uh, genre and a whole yard, but that that was not a fun area to grow up in. So tell me a little bit about growing up in the Bronx. I'm assuming, I don't know, like I said, how old you are, but I'm assuming sort of the same kind of uh, uh, age period. Yeah, 54. So actually, I love growing up in the Bronx because I didn't know anything different. 
the thing that I love the most is that it was truly a melting pot. So, so I was in international breakers crew. I was the only white kid. We had a Filipino, a Korean, an African American, a Dominican, a Puerto Rican. I'm trying to think if I'm missing anybody, <laughs> but there was only one of every race in our group. And we would, you know, do the high school battles and stuff. And, you know, I really appreciate now like the diversity in New York. I went back with my son to watch for Monday night football. I'm also a big bills fan. Went to school in upstate New York, became a bills fan. I went back for the Monday night game against the Jets and I was happy to show him and being like, just walk down this street and notice how many different cultures and how many, like everybody's speaking a different language. And I've missed that, you know, now that I live in Michigan, you know, everybody looks like me. (laughs) And so I've really missed the diversity, but I loved it growing up. I mean, there was, it was a, you know, what I love and appreciate the most is how upfront and honest New Yorkers are. Like if they love you, they'll hug you and they kiss you right away. And if they hate you, they'll give you the finger and you know where you stand. And I I guess I'd say is that I've, some people had a hard time adapting to my honesty sometimes when I first got over here. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm 100% in agreement with that. I live in LA now. It's, I, I lived in Philly. I grew up in Philly. Philly is sort of like a a stepchild of New York, I guess, in, in a way, always trying to, trying to be New York, but there is that layer of transparency here, like there you get stabbed in the front here in LA, you get stabbed. In the, they'll smile, but they'll stab you in the back. You know, you know where the knife is coming from kind of thing. So I, I definitely can relate to that. Were your parents together? Do you have siblings? I do. Yeah. My parents, unfortunately, have both passed. And so that's been kind of a shift of kind of being like, well, I don't have a, a safety net or so, you know, it's like, once they go, you're kind of like, you're in this position, you know, we're still relatively young. They, they died a number of years ago when I was in my forties uh, to have that done. And then my brother and sister, um, they both moved away. So my sister was in LA for a while outside of it, but she's in Arizona now with her husband. And my brother mm-hmm. is in uh, North Carolina and I'm in Michigan. So unfortunately, we're really kind of all spread out. Mm-hmm. Going back to saying what I was, uh, what we were talking about earlier, when you were a kid, did you like, you were a breaker, you were a, a break dancer. I'm sure you were watching, uh, you know, Beat Street o- over and over and uh, and listen to uh, hip hop as I was. We would put the cardboard, we would play hockey and then we'd bring the cardboard with the, with the box and put it out and, you know, white kids and all, all kinds of uh, trying to break dance and stuff. It was, it was interesting. But you were mentioning psychology. So as you were a kid, me describe like, how did you even get into uh, psychology? And as other kids are reading other things you, you're drawn to, like Freud, you were mentioning. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I have no idea how I just have always had the sense that this is what I should do. You know, I, I'm a strong Christian, too. And so I believe it's like a God thing that he put it on, on my heart early. And as my kids were getting older and trying to figure out who they wanted to be and stuff, I wasn't frustrated with them. But I was just sort of like, wow, like, I've, like, how do you not know? Like, so Again, in the Bronx, you'd get into fights all the time. I had at least one fight a year and you just do it to defend your territory. But even those people, when I was, you know, if they had a problem, they'd come talk to me <laughs> and then we get into a fist fight, like, you know, two weeks later or something. Yeah. And as I went on, you know, I just became more and more interested. I'm like, well, what makes people tick? You know, it was just always this curiosity. So I was saying, you know, was early in high school, I would just read like analysis of dreams, I was fascinated by it, Freud's book. And so that's kind of nerding out a little bit. So when I went to college, I knew, like, I had no question. I was like, I'm gonna be a psych major. And I just did that. And I never questioned it. And I just, you know, fought, fell more and more in love with it. And then it was the last class I took in college. So I was also a runner. And when I say that is like, I ran, I had a great mental game. Or so I thought I just didn't have a lot of talent. So I struggled and I was never great. I wasn't going to run in college. 
And I had my own mental blocks. And the last class I took in college, now after I had an athletic injury and so my whole career is over, the last class I took in college was an elective called sports psychology. I'm like, well, what is this? So anyway, I go into the class and I'm immediately falling in love with it. I'm like, this is a thing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this could have helped me like with all my cross country running and mental blocks. And then I'm like finding out that like, you know, there's an actual way to think and to, and to interact with your thoughts and feelings so that you can actually be your best. You don't just grind and you just don't work hard like I had been told. And so then I go to graduate school and I'm like, well, I want to actually still be a psychologist. I want to help people. So what do athletes suffer from the most? And so that's when I specialized in pain and injury and performance anxiety, because those are the things that I know as high performers, like every athlete gets injured. And if you're going to go somewhere and be, you know, be successful, you're going to have some anxiety about it. It's completely normal. So I specialized in those and, you know, the the story continues, but that's my, that's my beginning. So, so let's, let's sort of uh, go with that trajectory. You decided uh, you're going to be a psychologist and you want to focus on uh, high performance athletes. That was sort of, uh, that was initially you were carving out for yourself because you saw that there was a need for that because you were that. What did you do? What was your approach and how did you kind of put together your own process to be able to help that? Actually knowing in yourself that what's missing for you, how do you take that and sort of, you know, project that out to others? Yeah. So it's a lot easier for people to do what I'm doing now. Um, but a couple of decades ago, as you said, we had to kind of piece it together. So I, I knew that I wanted to be a, a licensed psychologist. And as I said, I wanted to specialize. And so when I went to graduate school, I went to get my clinical degree, but I got it with a guy who knew sports psychology and I was able to tailor my career or my, my electives in my clinical degree towards athletes. So our behavioral observation class, for example, I did on overtraining in athletes. And when I had a disability class, I did it on wheelchair athletes. And my, my dissertation was on pain tolerance and the effect of competition on pain tolerance. So I would do all of that. When I got out, I had a lot of training of applying in clinical work, taking these performance principles and applying it to health. So actually, my first job after some uh, internships and postdoc study was in chronic pain. I became director and chief psychologist of a chronic pain center. So I helped uh, people with fibromyalgia, chronic pain and headaches overcome that and get a life get their life back, even though they couldn't cure the pain, mm-hmm. worked with some obesity and things too. And all the same while I was working out of our sports medicine clinic, not only addressing athletic injury, but that's when I was really kind of hitting either the mental toughness training for athletes who are fine and just needed that type of training to be better, or the ones that were struggling and coming in with some more clinical issues about like these big mental blocks or, you know, the negative coaching and the impact that that could have the performance anxiety, as I had mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um And then just to get qualified in that, you know, I was through the Association of Applied Sports Psychology, got certified through them a number of years ago, and then have stayed active there and become a fellow member of the U.S. Olympic Committee Sports Psychology and Mental Training Registries for both sports psychology and and mental health. So, and just presented at their conference last week, and that went great. And I'm probably going to talk about some of the stuff on our podcast that I was presenting to my colleagues and just got a great response from it. And so I just, I just love this whole idea of that there's a science to perform. Like there's a way to do it and it goes far beyond just grinding because, you know, grinding will exhaust you. And, you know, if you're going to be paying attention to what you're saying in your head and not learning how to interact with it or trying to control it, that's also going to slow you down. And I know we're going to hit those points, but 
I'm as passionate. If you can't tell, I'm as passionate today as the day I discovered it. Yeah. Um, and I love being on this podcast. I got to thank you because my mission now is with the years that I have left, I wanted to go to scale. Like I've helped a lot of people one-on-one. I've done presentations. I go into organizations and teams, but now I've created a success stories community online because I want to be able to get this to everybody out there and being able to do it to scale. So that's where I'm at today. And, you know, being on these podcasts and getting this message out to help people, you know, in this episode is my mission. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's an incredible uh, mission. And you mentioned pain that I, I wanted to kind of dig a little bit deeper in that so I can understand that. Uh, so are you suggesting that some pain is related? Like, yes, you have physical pain, but you actually can exacerbate that pain uh, with your thoughts and there is a way to be able to say, okay, yes, you have pain and maybe can reduce that pain with your thoughts. Like, does you, do your thoughts actually control the level of your pain? Yes, um, a thousand percent. And it's been proven in the research for decades now. And you wouldn't know that every time somebody just kind of prescribes a pill for you mm-hmm. and as if it's only physiological, but you're taking a biopsychosocial experience and reducing it to the biological. And it's particularly in chronic pain, it's highly problematic. Here's the physiology of pain in very layman's terms. Like if if I you know stub my toe, there's going to be some neurons that get fired. It goes into my spinal cord. It goes up into my brain, and it's in my brain that it combines with what do I think about that? What are the emotions that I feel about it? And what's the social context that it's happening? And all of that gets mixed in together to then produce the pain experience. And then I perceive, and that's the key word. I perceive pain in my toe, and I have a particular reaction to it. And you see that this can vary by a whole bunch of things that they've done. They've documented, for example, I remember this one fascinating study of a construction worker that had a nail gun and shot it through his foot and had this excruciating pain, looks down and sees this nail through his foot. And they're like, they call the doctors and everything else. Long story short, when they find out it actually went between his toes and missed. But because he thought he had gotten it <laughs> shot through his foot, he had all this pain that was 100% psychologically created. Doesn't mean it was fake. I want to emphasize that to the listeners. Absolute real pain, but psychologically driven. In the other direction, I, it was something similar where this guy had something, uh, some other nail or something else get shot out and go into his head, but he thought it went by him, but it was yeah. lodged in his head and had no pain until they told him and he went and found out, hey, there's something you know stuck in your in your head that it actually went through, but because he didn't realize it. So it is modulated very much by that. Every pain experience you have is a combination of what you think, what you feel, the social context, in addition to the biology. Yeah. And you don't, the, the easiest emphasis of this is phantom pain. You mm-hmm. know, when we unfortunately have veterans or something that come back and they don't have legs, I've worked with these people who have pain in legs that aren't there. Yeah. They're not crazy. It's just really emphasizing that the brain is where your pain is contained. It's so interesting because... So I, a couple personal things came up uh, when you were uh, talking about that. I remember I was uh, using like a, a knife or some of that to cut something out and I cut myself and I didn't realize that I cut myself. After a while, I started seeing blood. When I looked down, that's when I got the sense of pain because I didn't feel it at the mo- in the moment. And uh, so... You know, there there is a sense of adrenaline and all that other stuff that kind of blocks it. It has an analgesic quality, so you don't feel it after a while. But this mind-body connection is a, it's just such an amazing thing. At, a, at an injury recently, I tore my meniscus and my knee, uh, both meniscus. I have pain, 
but I, I'm, I'm struggling with this whole concept because I'm used to performing. Like I hike every single day. And so I'm telling myself, it doesn't really hurt, but it actually hurts. But I'm trying to tell myself that it doesn't really hurt. So I'm trying, I'm always struggling with this whole brain of telling me, hey, you have to listen to the pain so you can slow down. So in athletes, I'm trying to figure out when is that, you know, if an athlete says they're in pain, but you can physically see their injury is better, but they still have this block that they're in pain. How do you get past that? Because especially when athletes get like, ACL tear, and Rodgers. Like, there's different people who come back differently. I'm an Eagles fan, right? I remember Terrell Owens, like, he tore his ACL, went and played in the Super Bowl, almost in one leg, but he told himself, he's like, I am going to be fine. I'm going to play. And I'm sure most people would be like, there's no way physically he can recover in time to do that. But he told himself that he could. So what's what's that, like, fine line between that brain and, and body uh pain yeah so a couple things first fly eagles fly you guys look good this year <laughs> thanks dude i love to because he spent a couple years in buffalo too so i had some exactly. fun with him. he's a character <laughs> and we could spend days about this one but if i was going to maybe funnel it in i would say it has everything to do with the relationship that you have with the pain and particularly those with chronic pain if you're going to have the goal of like how do i tell myself it's not there because i hate it and i don't like it and i don't want it that exact motivation is actually going to bring it up because you're going to be more so like, hey, I don't want to have the pain. But now if you don't want to have the pain, you're still thinking about the pain. If I tell you right now, five seconds, don't think about chocolate. Chocolate just showed up. Now, maybe it would have shown up anyway. For me, it probably would have. But <laughs> you know, we could use anything. The more we don't want something, the more we have of it because that's our brain processing. Now, I didn't talk to T.O. about this, but what I'm guessing is and what I found in both chronic pain all the way through athletes is that given the reality of your pain, can you be willing to feel it in service of what you're doing? So with your hiking, if I were going to you know, counsel you, if that's okay on the podcast yeah, here, sure. I would kind of talk to you a little bit more about, well, why do you hike? What's important to you? How much are you willing to feel in service of that? And so when your pain shows up, you get the choice to kind of say, well, I could prioritize pain relief and stop. Or I can say, you know, the pain is here. Let me make some adjustments and vary, you know, my movement to some, you know, PT, things like that, but only in the service of functioning. And if I really love this fitness level, this, this experience of hiking, or in TO's case, hey, I really want to play ball. That's who I am. You'll have pain, but you'll have less suffering. And then you can bring that pain along with you. And when I've worked with chronic pain, that's really been the magic. You know, people did end up getting pain relief, but that was never our goal. Our goal was what's the life that you want to live? How do we help you get there? But without the rule that I have to have X amount of pain in order to do it. And it was amazing that people would keep up and become more and more fun. I remember one person with chronic headaches. We looked at the end of this eight weeks and she was you know, a little disappointed that you know her headaches didn't get any better. But what she'd gotten back was back to work, back to her church, back with the family and back exercising. Yeah. All without any pain relief, but it's because of how the interaction was and she created a space. Now, again, if I could cure the pain, I would, but there's a lot of things in this world that we unfortunately have to suffer with. And once we can make, open up and expand around that and allow that, it takes some training, but once we can do that and give up the struggle to control it, 
that's when we get the freedom and that's where we get the performance. Yeah. I mean, it's such an important thing you said. It, I kind of equate this to my whole theory of fear. And I used you know, tell my daughter this all the time. Don't deny the fear, but do it in spite of it. Like there's this whole mindset of, you know, this positive rah-rah thinking kind of thing as like, you know, no, it's like, let's think positive. So you're denying yourself your own truth. And I think what you just said is super, super important. You connect yourself to the outcome of what you want to achieve. So for me, this is my, hiking is my therapy. Like I, it's not about endurance and it's not about, you know, physical performance, which, which does help, but it's all mental to me. It's a, it's being able to disconnect. And this is my meditation. Uh, I'm with nature. I'm not thinking. I'm just being. And it's so much more important to me to have that, that I can deal with the pain. Yes, I'll put a brace on and I'll do that. But you just said it's such an important thing to say, connect to the outcome. Why is this so important to you? And you're not denying the pain. But when you're doing it, yeah, I mean, if I step incorrectly, I can kind of feel it for a while. But I'm not thinking about that because I'm thinking about, you know, the positive aspects that I get from hiking. So it's extremely important to be able to know that with athletes as well. I guess also to add to that question is, especially with athletes, I mean, there's a huge amount of investment that goes into an athlete and there's this whole sort of balance, right? So you have an, a physical injury and when do you, an athlete probably wants to go out and play, but when does that, uh, when do you actually play to say, okay, physically, you're not going to make it worse. So you can mentally say, yes, you want to play, you, you connect to the outcome. But if you do play, you know, you actually can act, make it worse. The injury uh, can be worse. So do you work together with the, you know, the physical trainers and, and people who make those decisions say, you know what, we'll take every precaution, we'll tape it, we'll do this and this and this. So this player can achieve, you know, what their desired outcome is without actually making the physical injury worse. The big answer in psychology is always it depends because it always depends on the individual, the context, their goals, their how much they want to risk. Particularly at the elite levels, we've learned that we've had to protect athletes from themselves. Like we'll take the concussion protocols, for example. Almost yeah. nobody wants to sit down because of a concussion. But you know, the athletes have appreciated that you know the sports medicine staffs have put things in place and say, you're not allowed to make that decision. So they can continue to be you know, that athletic mindset of I'm going to do anything, but they're in a support system that protects them from themselves. So that's worked out. It's working out better there. Now, at the same time, they'll still, you know, take shots or wrap things up and play with a broken bone. And it's the freedom that we have in this world to kind of say, well, if I'm willing to risk my long-term health to win this one game, you know, we have the freedom to choose that. My hope would be that it wouldn't be just in the heat of the moment that you regret it later on, but depending on how much that's important to you in the same way that people take risks and, you know, how much am I going to invest in my financial business and how much is worth it? You know, in, uh, shoot, even us just going to the gym and doing CrossFit, like, do I want to lift this or, and risk it or, or not? Or how sore do I want to be? How tired do I want to be? My kids have been telling me forever to stop playing flag football on Sundays and get out of the gym. Cause I've got, you know, concussions and broken this and broken that. But you know what, to me, even though I've got some lingering pain as a result of it is I've loved the 20 years that I've spent staying active. And, you know, if I die five years earlier, as a result of living my best life athletically, I'm honestly okay with that. So it, it's like you had said, it, it's the values and getting the real clarity of it, of how much is worth it. And so the, the meaning in your, in your pain is really, I guess, the phrase that I want your listeners to hold on to yeah. is that otherwise, if you don't have any meaning in your pain, 
Well, of course you would want relief. But if you have the pain and pain is keeping you from something else, you've got to kind of find out that that's what gives it meaning. That's why athletes work so hard. Like you look at what they do and the training they do and why do they put themselves through it? Because they've identified that that pain in training is going to mean a championship or I'm going to make the team. Or this is even for your high school kid. Like how hard is he willing to work in order to make varsity? It always comes down to that. How much pain am I willing to pay in order to get the result? And if you're not willing to pay it, then it's okay. You don't have to be a champion. Most people aren't. But rather than failing at it, just realize that it's your relationship with your pain that maybe was it. And just realize that you're choosing not to be a champion because it's not worth how much it's going to cost you physically or otherwise. Really, really good point. One of the other things, uh, we work with uh, professional athletes in one of my businesses where we provide genetic testing and also some kind of anti-inflammatory like CBD products, uh, et cetera, for for athletes that in certain leagues, they can consume those type of products. So one of the things that I've heard from healthcare professionals that work with these athletes is one of the biggest challenges they have is this anxiety and stress prior to competition, especially Olympic athletes, because they, they train for, you know, years to get to this one uh, event that's going to be just seconds. And that fraction of a second makes all the difference. And if they don't get, you know, if they don't win, they don't medal, you know, it's another four years if they can actually make it. So it's a huge amount of pressure. And that alleviation of stress of how they approach the actual event means all everything. It's, it's a huge performance indicator. So first of all, my question is, do you find that similar with the athletes that you work at? And what is your approach to overcome some of those stress levels that, that may inhibit their performance? Yeah, wonderful question. And thank you for this one. This is my bread and butter. This is my sweet spot. I literally spend hours a day every day working with somebody about this or, or managing my own, which I guess the first point about how normal it is. And I'm going to talk more slowly only because if the anxious people are listening or people with anxiety is like, I want to you know kind of slow this down and ask this question. Like, imagine you're an Olympic athlete or imagine your own situation. Should you really not be nervous about what you're about to do? Is it really realistic that I should be telling an athlete to think positive that you're going to beat everybody else in the world and win gold? <laughs> Am I supposed to tell students to don't worry, you're smart, you're going to pass that test? Am I supposed to tell you know, uh, I don't know, gosh, anybody like you're going to your job and just don't worry about it. You're going to be great and be optimistic. A couple problems with that. One is your brain's never going to believe that optimism because the threats are out there. You know that if you were going to take a test, you could fail. You know, if you're going to ask somebody out on a date, they could say no. You know that if you're going to play a game, you could lose because somebody always does. Somebody always does. Only one person can win a whole tournament. Only one person can win gold. And if you're going to try to convince yourself that you're that person, I mean, let's say I'm working with 20 Olympic athletes in one thing, and I take give them the speech to think positive and believe they can win. Only one of them is going to think I'm good. The 19 others are going to think I suck at what I do <laughs> because that doesn't work. So the relief my clients get so much is when I say, hey, you're okay. You should be thinking about this. In fact, our brain is actually built to look out into the environment and look for danger. It's our survival mechanism. So let's get coaches, parents, colleagues, bosses, spouses, everybody to stop pathologizing this and stop telling everybody to calm down and don't worry about it. In fact, if you, if that were actually the advice to follow, they're doing you a disservice because if you're worried about a test, like I would tell my kids, they're like, I'm nervous about the test tomorrow. My first question is, have you studied? And you know what they most often say? 
no, not really. <laughs> or if they have said, yeah, I'm like, then what are you nervous about? Because then you obviously haven't prepared enough. That is a wonderful red flag. If you're nervous about the competition with these athletes, I would, in a, in a longer way, but ultimately get them to the idea to understand that the anxiety is there for a reason, but listen to it. What is it telling you? Where is your preparation lacking that if you want to win gold, where can you put more effort into it? Let's take committed action towards that. And the great news is, is that first and foremost, that anxiety then helps them prepare to actually be their best so they can actually do what they want to do. And then as a side effect, your anxiety goes down. But the emphasis has to be on your focused on performance and less of an emotional agenda about how you feel. Because last point, and then I'll let you talk again. How many times have you seen people with overconfidence? They think they're great. They think they're wonderful. And then they don't come and they don't bring their A game because they feel entitled. I mean, how many times have you thought positively and it not turn out well? There's there's not a great a perfect correlation between positive thinking and outcomes. Mm. There's almost as many. It's, it's like, what's the function of the thoughts? I was in the gym last week and I was not positive. I was calling myself names, calling myself a wimp because I was just, you know, too lackadaisical. People were saying they're like, as a sports psychologist, they're like, hey, like, what's with all this negativity? I was kicking my own ass because that's what I needed. I was doing it with loving kindness in my heart. I knew what I was capable of, but all that negative talk was energizing me. It's the function of what we say, not whether it's positive or negative, right or wrong, should or shouldn't. What is the impact that these words are having? Sometimes negative can help me go in the right direction. And sometimes positive can hold me back. You want to look at the function. I mean, what you're saying is probably pretty controversial these days with the culture of these coddled kids that are being raised to only think, you know, positive and not say anything that may be offensive, even to yourself. If a uh, Gen Zer may hear you at the gym, you know, saying, kicking your own ass, they can come up and say, sir, uh, maybe you should speak uh, more positively to yourself because you're not, you don't want to do, because we're, we're, we're teaching these kids to do that. And I, I, I definitely agree with you on, on this level of, well, if I'm motivated by kicking my own ass, what's it to you? If you're motivated by, you know, flowers and all these other things that you you have to give yourself all the time, wonderful. Whatever that is, the whatever you connect to, that because you know yourself. I want to go back to this example of stress because I speak all over the world on different stages. Stress is something that I sort of embraced because I had this conversation with my girlfriend the other day. And she was like, I can never do public speaking. I can never. I remember when I was a kid, I went up on stage and I went and I froze because of stress. And I'm like, well, Barbara Streisand has tremendous stage fright. She does not even go out and perform. Like it takes her so much to go out and do a song is like, it must be hell for her. And she's like whatever you think about her music, you, everybody can recognize she's got an incredible voice. Like well, that instrument is incredible. Why would she have that? And I remember even starting out, you feel that stress. But when I, for me personally, when I go on stage after 30 seconds of thinking in when I start, when I'm in flow, I stop thinking about that. It's not there anymore. And I think the more that you do it, it becomes sec- sort of second nature and a habit. But you know, I am just on Metallica recently. James Hetfield was talking about he has extreme anxiety before going on stage. And I'm like, this guy plays years, like 40 years. They've been playing 72 seasons, the name of their album. And 
in front of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and you still have this. So I, I think what you're saying, and I want to unpack this a little bit, that is there's nothing wrong with it. There is stress. It's the connection of what you do about that stress that I think uh, makes the difference between showing up and performing at your highest level than having that sort of be your crutch, so to speak. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, two big points come to mind. One is, as I'm listening to your tone, is the way I think most people talk about it, like stress is it's a bad thing. Well, well what's the definition of stress? It's, it's just a, it's a pressure to change. Like we have stress when we have to change. There's distress when it's negative, And then there's what we call you stress, which like when I buy a new house, I start a new job, I have kids, I get married. We feel very stressed, but these are all wonderful, positive things. So stress is like what we experience is sort of the impact of change. So if we can kind of neutralize that a little bit, it's how do we interpret the stress? Because it's not that I shouldn't be stressed performing 100,000 people, or as we said, the Olympic athlete, or you know, going in to take the test. We often talk about it like, oh, I'm so stressed. Well, what I help my clients do is like, well, you should be because you're about to do something great. That's going to cause stress. And stress, if you get into the fight or flight response, is really preparing you for action. Your heart rate picking up and you're talking about all this anxiety, but maybe it's your body getting ready for the battle, for the fight. You know, your, your attention is narrowed in, you're sweating, you know, and you, if you're interpreting that all as negative and problematic, well, then you're going to experience it as distress and it be, be a problem, be distracting. And you're not going to be able to do well on that concert or in that sport performance because you're all consumed and your attention's in the wrong way on what you're feeling. So it goes back to what I had said earlier, when you can make peace and expand around the stress and understand, well, what's actually happening here? Well, this means a lot to me. That's where I start off. I feel so stressed out, not because I'm going to do bad, but I'm afraid I'm going to do bad. But both of those are because I care so much. Therefore, if I interpret the stress as an activating event, my heart rate's up, I've got all this energy, and then I teach my clients and athletes to then channel it into the preparation, as I said earlier, because now it's moving me in the direction that I want to go, because what I really care about is having that great concert, knocking that ball out of the park you know, having that great conversation. I get all of my attention then onto the performing. And it's not a distraction or running away from the stress. It's rather that's how we talk about expanding around it and saying, hey, the stress is pointing me in the right direction. So I'm going to use it and identify that the most important thing is focusing on my performance. Not because of any other reasons outside of I have to, I mean, it is technically the right answer, but mainly because that's what I want in my heart. All of this emotion is coming from what do I really want? And we'll find that if we slow down, we really want to do well in X. And the scientific answer to that is then we have to put our whole heart and attention onto doing in the present moment what needs to be done to do it well. Do you see stresses sometimes as an indicator that you're less than your optimal preparation, like you didn't prepare enough? I'll give you an example. Talk about like MMA fighters or boxers. Uh, I'm more of a boxing uh, person, M MMA, but they always talk about the person that seems calm before the battle is usually the one that you think uh, is going to win. Be the other guy may be, you know, uh, more adrenaline going there, but the person that seems calm seems to be like they sort of fought this battle in their mind already over and over and over. And the stress level looks visibly looks to be uh, lower than the other person. And they seem to be a lot more focused on the outcome because they seem calmer. 
Is that an indicator? Is being more calm before you have an event or boxing or, or running, whatever that is? Is that an indicator that you said, okay, I've prepared to the best of my ability. I've done everything. And now I have this event and I just have to show up and go through the motions because I already did the work. And because my stress level is so up prior to that, it means maybe I'm questioning that I didn't do enough of the preparation. Is that is that an, an example of that? It very well could be, which will bring me quickly to my second point. But well, maybe I'll make this point first. It's hard to create rules to kind of say what is. Now, as human beings, we like to do that. And as we had said before, you know, hey, go back to the rule of, hey, you got to think positive and feel confident so you can do well. We like that because it creates a little bit of safety for us. And our brain knows that we could predict something if we know what the rules are. The problem is we, if I can get a little intellectual about this, is that this, if this is what we're doing in our psychological and medical sciences, where we like, okay, well, what's the diagnosis? Now here's the prescription. And, you know, we've done all these studies and this is what it's like, you know, well, there is no average person. Like if this study is done on 10,000 people and we're now create a protocol for the average, nobody is that one person that the average sums out to be. There are variations of all of it. And so all of these protocols and these rules don't apply to everybody. And we have to move our our psychological and medical systems to be more individualistic than they've become. And I'll say that with this aspect here too, is that go back to what I'd said earlier about the process of interacting with your stress. I've worked with athletes that are hyped up all the time and they look, you know, maybe chaotic, but they're highly prepared, but that's what working for them. I can go back to Bill's quarterbacks. As I understand it, Jim Kelly and Josh Allen are two best quarterbacks um, throw up before every game. And I've actually worked with athletes to help them stop throwing up because then that's been problematic. But for these two, they're the two best that the Bills have ever seen. It works. So maybe it's not problematic. Are they not prepared? They seem really prepared. They've done wonderful things. And then on the flip side, the calm. It's like, well, it could be. I've heard a lot like, you know, and I've seen a lot of martial artists, you know, they're super calm. And they're like, they're, they know they can whip your butt so bad. They don't have to but you can feel that they could right, <laughs> and they just right. come, but they don't have to do anything. But then there's others that think that way and they're totally unprepared and they're calm because they don't know that they're about to get their butts whipped or they don't have any idea of what they're getting into. So I wouldn't use the rule to say that you need to be calm or you need to be this. I would double down on what you had said though, is always look at your preparation because yes, you had asked that question. Most people aren't as prepared as they could be. At the game's highest levels, too. I mean, I've worked with professional sports and things. Like, people could still prepare more. Because until you get to that super elite level where, unfortunately, you maybe you're sacrificing in other areas of your life. And I shouldn't say unfortunately. I just, coming back from the conference, we had a two-time gold medalist speaking. And she spoke about how the rest of her life was on hold during the Olympics. And now she was happy to retire so that she could, you know, now pay attention to her husband and do other things because everything else had to stop for the Olympics. Yeah. But people make sacrifice. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I was just going to say people make sacrifices. I, I think, I think this notion of you're an athlete. So, you know, your, your, your family has to make sacrifices because you're so focused on, on achieving your goal as a professional, you know, like uh, Kobe and, uh, and uh, a lot of the elite athletes, that, but I always tell people, well, if somebody's going to be a doctor, it's the same thing. Like they, you're going to, it's very difficult. You still, as a family, you still have to make sacrifices. So every single profession that has 
a sort of elite status associated with it. It takes a lot of work. You have to make sacrifices. It's not always like balance. Balance doesn't really work for people who want to achieve, you know, greatness in whatever profession they have. Yeah, hundred percent. I hate that word of balance in life because uh, the best I can say is harmony because at different, even different stages, you need to invest more in the other. We're all limited by 24 hours in the day. So how do you spend those minutes? We can't spend them equally. And if you're putting you know, 90% of them into your career, into your schoolwork, into your athletics, then it's going to come from your, your health behaviors, your sleep, your, you know, whatever else. Um, and there's not a prescription to say how to do it either, because then if you do want to have a balanced life, then that's a new definition of excellence. I want to be sure that we put that out there. Yeah. You know, again, I think we take for granted what it truly means to be the best and how much we have to prepare. There's always more preparation that can't be done. But it's up to you to decide, is it worth it? And so if I want a well-balanced life, that would be excellence to me personally. And then that would mean that you wouldn't excel in any one thing, but you'd be pretty good. You'd have you know good health and your marriage would be good and your kids would be good and you're doing good at your job, but you're not going to be the best seller in your company. You're not going to, you know, have, you know, be ripped with a six pack. <laughs> you know, your kids are going to still complain and maybe want to have a little bit more time with you. And your wife's going to say, Hey, you know, you could do more around the house. But overall, it's good and balanced. But if you're going to up in any one, it's got to come from something else. And so I want to empower those who are listening to be realistic about it. Because we use this word great and excellent far too much. Like everybody's great and everybody's excellent. Well, no. If they were, that'd be the new normal. And we want to respect what it takes to truly be different and the work that has to go in. And to your point again, the preparation. We could all prepare more. It's up to you to decide whether it's worth it or not, though. Yeah, I, I think this whole thing on balance, it's very, very important um, to emphasize because you have to have the people around you to understand your journey. And you have to have people that support that journey, whether you're a professional athlete or whether you're an entrepreneur that's starting a business. It is very, very parallel to me in not being a professional athlete, never, you know, uh, going into that. But I've no, I know enough professional athletes that I can see that there's a parallel and similarity. Your family needs to understand that you're making sacrifices. You're in the office, you're training, you're working, you're doing all these things like a professional athlete would do in order to achieve something. And other things are going to suffer because of that. And you have to have the other uh, people in your family, uh, you know, you have to make sure that you have people around you that can support that process or be, it's okay to be middle of the road. It's okay. We, we have, you know, there's a lot of people in the middle. And if you accept that in yourself, that that's fine. Also, I think that's that, that level of hunger. I think that's the big differentiator. Um, I want to, it's a horrible segue that I just did because I want to talk about obesity. And you said, and I talked about hunger. That's not what I meant, but that's what popped into my mind. I'm going to, I'm going to try to preface it this way. Uh, we talked about positive thinking and, and negative thinking. And you brought up the example of uh, chocolate and, and uh, just Tony Robbins come to mind because he does this other, this exercise very similar to what you just did. He said, you know, everybody close your eyes, uh, everybody look around the room and uh, try to remember everything you see that's brown. Uh, okay. You got to close your eyes. And then he goes, all right, open your eyes. And now tell me what you saw was blue. And you're like, oh shit. Well, so this whole thing where you just did with the, with chocolate. So I want to, I want to talk about positive thinking and relate this to obesity and some of the other conditions that you address, positive and negative. So we have this whole thing 
you know, the, the book The Secret came out years ago, the positive thinking. There are some physics around positive thinking and vibrations and, and frequency and all those other things. But uh, what you're mentioning is when you think negatively, you will attract that to yourself. When you think positively, you attract that to yourself as well. Are, are, are you a believer of at least that, that power of positive thinking? Because as you were talking about, if you're having these negative thoughts, you'll attract more of those to yourself. But it, is it how you frame those thoughts and use that for your own motivation uh, because you're still going to attract the negative or the positive regardless of what you focus on? Was that the, uh, the position you're, you're taking? And then the follow-up question to that is, how do you relate that to people that uh, have eating issues or obesity and is that something they're using to kind of tell themselves this narrative that you have to kind of change for them uh, how they relate uh, to themselves to food yeah so with the whole like sort of manifesting and the positive and negative thinking i would say that that you know to again establish rules around this is going to be maybe detrimental to the listeners in the sense of like, well, what exactly are we talking about? What exactly are you saying? What's your relationship to that particular thought, positive or negative? And what, why are you doing it? And what's happening as a result? And so please hold on to what I'm saying a little bit lightly with this. I'm certainly not against as much as I kind of go, you know, and kind of put down the positive thinking, I only do that in sort of equal response to how much people are attached to it. So I'm glad you're able to swing this back and forth is that I'm not against it at all when it's working. I love, and I, when my athletes, when you said you get into the flow, that involves a lot of positive thinking. It's not forced. And again, it's, it's performance enhancing. So there's nothing, then all the research in that way, I think is true. When you talk about then the manifesting, when I can truly think positively and believe in it, well, then if I attach to those thoughts then that's going to increase my motivation. It's going to increase my energy. It's going to increase my effort. And if I'm applying that to sport or business or relationship, I'm going to get better results. So I could see how that would be the case in the same way that if I'm really fused and attached to my negative thinking, well, then that's going to kill my motivation. I'm not going to be able to get the work done. I'm going to be distracted. I'm going to be focused on the brown instead of the blue. And I'm not going to miss the important points. And then, yeah, that's going to manifest into more negativity and you know, worse relationships. So, of course, your thoughts are influencing one way or the other. Where I would intervene and maybe is different from what the books say is they don't really give the third option of just noticing them as psychological experiences. Mm. It's not the presence of negative thoughts that hurt us. It's our attachment to them. It's our investment in them. As I've said, you know, I mean, fifth grade was the hardest part for me. There's a lot of sixth graders when I was in fifth grade said some things in the Bronx that I still carry with me. I won't turn this into my own psychology session, but I know when my kids got into fifth grade, I remember standing in my living room, looking at them with tears in my eyes and being like, oh my gosh, like your freaking friends are still in my head telling me what to do. And I'm like, you guys don't know any. And of course, I didn't say this to my kids, but I'm looking at my little kids in fifth grade and being like, why do I have fifth graders in my head still commenting on my athleticism, my body, my worth? And I had to learn to just say that the presence of those thoughts, I could never get rid of them because they'd been there for decades. But I had to start to understand what's, why are they there? What's the science? How do I make it just a little bit more neutral? And then realize that I didn't have to listen to them. And I had to practice in the same way that you can have, you know, pick your least favorite politician talking in the background where you just don't pay attention. And it's changing that relationship to your thinking. 
and being able to unhook from it and then hook onto what's going to be more helpful. It doesn't mean that you have to swap out the negative thinking for the positive because then that's saying I have to think in a particular way. Let me ask you a quick question. Have you acted on every thought that you've ever had? Have you acted on every urge that you've ever had? And if you did, where would you be? Is that rhetorical? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely not. I mean, people don't want to go into, uh, you know, this head. Uh, it, it reminds me, it reminds me of, uh, I was, the, the movie, uh, Get Him to the Greek with Jonah Hill and the uh, uh, Puff Daddy uh, says to him about mind fucking, right? I'm, I'm mind fucking. He goes, well, you better wear a condom because I have a dirty mind. And that's the kind of thing there that absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> so two cool things. I went to high school with Puff Daddy. He, I ran right. Yeah, Mount St. Michael in the Bronx. So <laughs> the idea there is you're right. We have all, like every day, don't act on certain thoughts and feelings. If we did, uh, every answer I've gotten from an eight-year-old gymnast to her 80-year-old grandmother, dead or in jail, if we did everything that we okay. ever thought about. So the powerful lesson, if you get nothing out of this podcast, what I want everybody to listen to here is that your actions are independent of what you think and feel. We do things different than what we think and feel all the time. Every time you go to work and you don't want to, when you go to practice and you don't want to, you run that extra lap when you're tired and get up out of bed in the morning when, when the alarm clock goes off and I don't feel like it. Like over and over again, I see something that I like and I don't steal it even though the idea pops into my head. Like over and over again, these things go on. And so I train my clients to utilize that independence of thoughts, feelings, and actions, because as long as we continue to believe, oh, I did this because that's what I thought. Like we're kids. Why'd you hit your brother? He made me mad. Well, that doesn't work when we're an adult. <laughs> yeah. you know, we can act independent of this. So that's the skill set to work in. And so going back to the positive, negative, and the power of thinking, thinking in itself doesn't do too much. What, what's your action as a result of the thinking? That's where I double down on. So bouncing then to the obesity, again, another very complicated individualistic aspect of it. But my experience, you know, we have to deal with those thoughts and feelings that are contributing to it, you know, and I want to tell the people out there, if you're suffering with it, like there might be some biological, but there might be that comfort eating, which is it. There might be self-limiting beliefs. This is who I've been. You've also been in a culture of food. There are some cultures like growing up that we celebrate everything with sweets or we have these big meals or, you know, I know growing up in the Bronx, that was one thing was that you never left food on your plate. You always had to clean the plate because there were people in China that were dying and, you know, and don't waste that food because we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So I find even to myself now, it's like I have this cultural urge that I have to clean my plate. So if I have a big plate and I get served a lot, I'm going to eat more and that's going to tribute to weight gain. So I would explore with somebody struggling with obesity, a whole host of what are the thoughts and cultural conditions that are establishing this pattern contributing to your, to your weight gain or preventing your weight loss. And we would have to look at each one of them. And again, create some distance from them, understand why they're there, but suck the power out of them. Realizing that if you attach to why you want to be healthy or how, why you want to lose that weight and be more fit, how do we keep that? And then can you be more willing to feel the struggle that you're going to feel in losing the weight in service of that goal? Same process that I do with the elite athletes, we would do with obesity. By the way, I'm an immigrant. I was brought over when I was a little kid. And my parents, my dad grew up uh, right after World War II. And that, that eating, finishing everything on your plate 
it was just inherent that like I couldn't leave. I was really skinny. I could cry into my plate. My parents are watching TV in the other room. I'm still eating my last pee because I, I have to finish everything that's in the plate. So I totally have to change that mindset for me and then, you know, my, my uh, uh, kids as well. Uh, I wanted to sort of piggyback on on this and, and sort of kind of round this out with, with a, an experience with a client. So you were talking about and we'll use obesity and we can use athletes as an example, but there's this biology, pharmacology, psychology connection. And like with obesity, now it's the, the next new thing is Ozempic. Ah, you know, I'm going to stab myself with a needle and it's going to help me lose weight. Okay, but that, does that mean that I'm stabbing myself for the remainder of my life because I didn't change my psychology, my connection to the why? Why am I, uh, you know, having this issue with food? Same thing with uh, maybe athletes, and I'll use cannabis as an example because that's sort of another expertise uh, that I have. There's a lot of leagues now that are allowing athletes to consume cannabis, but WADA has is a performance enhancing drug. I never understood, you know, somebody smoking a joint and saying, okay, this is a performance enhancing drug. It usually doesn't work that way. So I wanted to uh, see what your thoughts are on yeah, we already talked about biology. Uh, yes, there's biology and there's genetics to all these things. But, you know, uh, there there are slower metabolizer genes and all those other things that, that can lead to people overeating and obesity. But then you have the pharmacology angle of that. And then you have the psychology that goes along with that. So if you, if an athlete was coming to you or somebody that has an issue with obesity and saying to you, you know what, um, I use analgesics for pain. Is that, is that okay? And how do I connect to that? And I do it all the time. You know, yeah, it's something hurts, but I just numb the pain. And then the same thing with, uh, with people who are obese. Um, you know, it's okay. I'm just going to, you know, give myself a drug to be able to reduce my weight. And then afterwards, when I'm, when I'm already lost all this weight, then I'll go into, you know, working on, on myself. Like if somebody comes to you, the, those two people, maybe the same person, what will be your approach uh, to addressing that? I guess what jumped into my mind right away is continues to be what we've been talking about is the function of each one of them. So when we say the analgesics, for example, you know, like in chronic pain, how that becomes so problematic, you know, because again, the purpose there was, well, to, but it decreases my pain. Mm -hmm. And my, my question then would follow up and be like, and then, and then what are you going to do? Like, why do you want to decrease your pain? Well, because it hurts, but if you didn't have the pain, what is it that you would do? Because and I've said this to some clients when they first come in is like, we can load you up and put you in bed and you can feel nothing and you can be drooling for the next 15 years, but we will cure your pain. And of course, they don't like that answer. That's ridiculous. But they're kind of getting closer to that because the pain has sucked out their life and they're not doing those activities. So as I said earlier, it'd be the attachment of, well, whatever it is that you're doing, is it moving you in the direction that you want to go? And if it is, then great, then we will support it, whether it be analgesics or a shot or this or that. If it's working, it's working. Now you have to be careful about how it's working. Well, yeah, it's working. I'm dropping the weight. Okay. Are there any other consequences going along with that? For Are there side effects? Is it draining your finances? Um, is it only going to be a short term? And then as you had said, you know, you, but you're still cleaning your plate and doing the other things that have contributed to the BC to begin with. Is this a short term fix? That's not going to work, you know, long term. Um, we see that a lot where people will do these things, they'll have these dramatic diets or this or that, but it's not sustainable. 
And then they go right back, understandably, to the things with that, that contributed to the weight gain to begin with. So it's hard to kind of give a rule of what we would do other than I'd say I'd be looking at the individual, support what's working as long as there's no negative side effects, really look, is it working in all areas of your life? And then when you catch yourself and you will catch yourself doing things that aren't working, identify why you're doing them. For example, I keep eating sweets every night and it's so stupid and I'm an idiot and, and I just keep gaining weight and I, I've had 12 nutritionists tell me I got to stop eating sweets at night. Okay. Yeah, that, that's probably true. And uh, you know, then why do I keep doing it? Well, emotional eating, it's a habit. I love it. Like you're getting something out of it. And I would say that's where I would start off and respect why you're doing the things that you don't want to do. And it'd be through the work together there to kind of say, well, can I actually realize that this is actually something that's hurting? Can I change my relationship with that behavior? Can I become more aware, for example, that, and I have this on my fridge, like I created this exercise inside success stories community because I wanted to do some things. And I have this thing of like, who do you want to be? And I've got a picture of myself, you know, when I was really ripped a few years ago. And I have, if I want to be that, I will go to bed, uh, you know, at 11, I will have no snacks and I'll have no sweets. And I was like, and then if I, I wrote this, if I want to suck and be heavy and play like crap on Sundays, mm-hmm. <laughs> then I will go to bed after midnight. I will, you know, have, have sweets. And I just put checks each time. And it held mm-hmm. me accountable to kind of say, hey, I still want the cookie, but I get to choose. Do I want the cookie or do I want to be good on Sunday? And consequences. It, yeah, uh, accountability more yeah. so. It helped me understand that what I'm going to do now, if I'm going to give into the short term, relieve my pain now and, and take care of that urge to eat the sweet, I'm going to pay for it later on. But I get to pick because if it's my son's birthday, then I'll check off that I'll be you know, bad on Sunday because I want to celebrate with a cookie for his birthday. And, and I want to get my clients to be intentional, not just reacting to thoughts and feelings, but realize that you get to pick every moment and every moment is separate. So that'd be the flavor that, um, and again, this is what we do in Success Stories Community, and this is the flavor that I do with my individual clients to really bring out that individual aspect, but tying it back into the value and the committed action towards that value, accepting and expanding around what you're thinking and feeling in the present moment. Yeah, I, I mean, it's what you said is, is so on point because it combines coaching which is that whole accountability with the psychology of the why and saying, let's, I mean, you use the hooks and, you know, triggers and all that. It's, it's the same thing. It's what is that? What triggers you? What is the reason? Let's unpack that and then change that hook with something else that you can connect to that's more positive and hold yourself accountable to making sure that you can do this and it's fine. But you'll be on this side of the fridge. But if you do this, this is the why you're doing that. And, and you have a visual to that connection. I, I mean, I love that example for sure. It's, uh, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I, I don't know if I have a picture of me besides when I was 18 with a ripped six pack. But, you know, it, it's gotten close. So maybe, that, uh, maybe I'll put a picture of you on my fridge and say, when you had your six pack, say, I can be like that guy. <laughs> All right. So, um I have a, a few fun questions uh, uh, to ask you, if you know, shift gears for a second. I'm a big music person, and uh, you know, obviously, if you see behind me, I have a bunch of different music. Uh, do you remember the very first concert that you attended? And if you do, uh, what was that? Yeah, so I was the oldest. So my parents didn't let me go to concerts. I want to say that I wish my first concert would have been the Beastie Boys, but I didn't get to a concert until my senior year of college, and it was Vanilla Ice. 
Ice Ice Baby, yeah. Ice Ice Baby, I got to see him. And he was actually, I think, my last concert, too. I saw him uh, a couple of months ago. Really? At, uh, 90s tour. Yeah. That's a pretty, that's a pretty cool, uh, you know, bookend. Yeah. Van- you start with Vanilla's uh, Ice and uh, you end with, uh, what, what's the last name? Van Winkle, I think, uh, or some of that. Yeah. Um, so, all right. Uh, this is this is a, a question I ask uh, all my guests, uh, and I'll, I'll give you some time to think about it as I'm asking a long-winded question. The next year, you can only listen to five albums, and it's only these five albums now, I'm going to preface this, and I say this. You don't have to name the name of the actual album. You can say, like, a Beastie Boys album. Like, that, that's okay if you just name the band. So what would be those five albums that you will listen to in the next year? And I, and I know that this is a moment in time because I do this to myself. I'm like, two of them I got, they're always consistent, you know, three possibly, and the other two interchange depending on my mood. So five albums. <laughs> um, well, the first one that came to mind is License to Ill, Beastie Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, number two that quickly came to mind was um, Slick Rick. I can't remember what the album is, but it's got Children's Story and all that's, that. On that's this. That's the name of the album. I think it's Children's Story. I think I thought so. Okay, yeah. So that one easily number two. Um, I don't know the name of the album, but again, a tribe called Quest. Um, I, I that's a nice, like smoother rap jazz. Um. And then what would the others be? I, I'd have to pick some Run DMC album just out of classics. I don't know if it'd be the first one or uh, first or the third one. Um, was it Raising Raising Hell? Raising Hell? Mm-hmm. But I got my Adidas and stuff like that on that one. So probably the first and third. I might double up on them. Um, and then it'd be a toss up. Between, you know, here you're right. It's like, I don't know, like Paid in Full with Eric B and Rakim or um like Dougie Fresh and like uh the show was just like I would whatever album that's on just because I love that song I could listen to that forever. I think you had Dougie Fresh on Slick Rick. Uh one of them say so I think you fulfilled your Dougie Fresh quota. It, it's not the show, but yeah. But uh I I would uh I'm a uh, Eric Eric B. Rakim for for sure. But I'm not influencing your decisions. Great, great uh, mix of hip hop. Uh, Tribe for me would be low end theory. That's the one. Okay, great. So final question, please describe what your room looked like growing up. Oh man, I've got a great picture. So I shared a room with my brother who actually would have all the decorations you had. He was totally into heavy metal. So you see how much I was hip hop. He was that much. He had the long black hair. He was like six foot tall, totally into that. So there was a thick divide where his, his desk, was over there and he had Metallica and he had a snake named passion and everything else like that. And then on my side, I remember I had like three Bruce Lee posters. I slept on the top bunk. I also had a poster of Heather Locklear. (laughs) Um, I had then on my desk, I had a big bulletin board. I had some more Bruce Lee things. I had my blue bookcase next to it. On top of the bookcase was my big boom box, you know, with the tape deck and everything else. And we would break dance in the middle there um, and I had, I don't know if I had my nunchucks hanging out, but I know they were close by. Um, I think I had them hanging up on the wall. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any posters that I'm missing. I think, no, I think it was, I was pretty limited on, on those. That's super cool. Yeah. I had, I also had Bruce Lee posters too. Then one was the glow in the dark one, the velvety one. Uh, yeah. And I had 
and I, and I had a, my Chinese stars and I would throw them into my closet. So my parents would be like, why are there all these holes in the closet? I was throwing my Chinese stars in there. So I actually had a dartboard for that because we'd go to Mr. Lee's on Fordham Road and we'd go there once a week and I'd get stars, my dragon t-shirt, um, my Bruce Lee keychains, like whatever. It was like, it was almost a, a weekly trip over to Mr. Lee's. But one of my first jobs uh, when I was like 15, maybe, or so I used, I worked for this uh, place called Asian World of Martial Arts. Like right now would be like a big online, but they were distributor of martial arts products. Uh, they were uh, in, in Philly, in, in Chinatown. So the books, the ch- stars, I used to get all that uh, either like wholesale or for, or for free. So I had a bunch of that stuff. Eddie, thank you so much. Where can people uh, find out more about you, uh, connect with you, engage with your community? Please let people know. Yeah, the, there's lots of places where I try to give stuff away for free, like on YouTube and things. But the, the big, big place to go is DrEddieOConnor.com. Um, so that's my main website. And I've got links to my mental toughness to 60 seconds on YouTube. And I really want to highlight uh, my membership, again, the Success Stories community. It's a place where you can really come in. And if you like what we've talked about here, I'd love to journey alongside you. Have you join another community of high achievers like yourself trying to get where you want to go? Um, learning how to overcome and accept these obstacles with clarity of your vision. And then again, doing it at your own pace, but having people to walk alongside you. Um, again, that's my life's work. And that's at drreadyoconnor.com slash membership. Um, I'd love to check it out and, and invite you in. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Great job, man. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.